You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. Have your Bibles. Open up uh, to John chapter 6. That's where we were last week, and I'm just going to continue working our way through John chapter 6. Friday night was a a wild night. Um, We had a kids point takeover where the kids took over uh, every nook and cranny of the church except for the closets and the offices. I mean, the kids just took it over with carnival games and laser tag, took over the basement. It was pretty wild. And it was a beautiful service that took place right here. So I'm telling you, this morning is extra anointed because this place has been prepared by the kids. The kids lead the way. They really, really do. It's the heart of Jesus. And he said, let them come. Actually learn from the kids. You're gonna enter the kingdom like children. So... So this place has been prepared. And so I, I witnessed it with my own eyes. This place is packed, this front area is packed with kids worshiping the Lord. Um, it was a beautiful, beautiful sound. It really, truly was. Um, so thankful for our kids, kids' leadership, um, Pastor Sheena and the team that she put together for that event. It was amazing. Truly, truly amazing. And the speaker that we had is a man by the name of Pastor Dick Gruber, he goes by PG, is his, is his name on the street. But um, Pastor Gruber had the kids repeating this, this chant throughout the night. I will believe in Jesus. And uh, it was beautiful to be hearing the next generation chant that to the Lord time and time, dozens of times. I will believe in Jesus. Uh, that declaration over their lives, uh, that they will place their trust in him. And it's that anthem that really even leads us to where we are this morning. Um, Jesus, last week we, we looked at the first part of John chapter six where Jesus described himself as the bread of life. And so now the diet of the believer is constant trust and belief in the sufficiency of Jesus. Not just at salvation, not just for the saving of our soul initially to be born again, but continually the diet for the born again child of God is trust, continual trust, throwing ourselves at the feet of Jesus, trusting in his sufficiency. And so we saw that last week and I'm glad the kids are being trained in that at a young age. Um, But this week I want us to continue because that message can rub our flesh in the wrong way. That message of continual, like the foolishness of that message rubs us in a certain way that that causes like a grumbling in our soul. And and I want us to address that. The grumbling spirit, the discouragement that sometimes we face as we live out this faith in this world, in this present reality, that grumbling heart. I I remember a story that my parents told me growing up um, as as newlyweds, they, they didn't have a lot of money and they lived in a, a cheap apartment with thin walls and they could hear the neighbors and uh, the neighbors right above them, they could hear as they called their kids to the table from time to time, they'd, they'd hear their kids grumbling. The thing they were grumbling about was quite amusing to my parents, so that's why they would tell us this story is they'd call them to dinner and as the kids, they'd hear the, the pitter-patter of the feet going to the table. They'd hear the kids grumbling. They'd say, not steak again. Mom, not steak again. And my parents, who, you know, were just kind of, they were working working their way through college. They got married in college, and they were poor, first-generation Christians, first-generation to go to to college. They didn't have a lot of money to put great food on the table. And they're 
They were just kind of lip, licking their chops, thinking about that steak dinner that was going, for, going to waste. Uh, and, and they were you know, wanting to muster up the boldness to go and invite themselves over to eat that steak with gratefulness. But they didn't. But they told, they told us that story to simply be thankful. But that, that picture of you know, an ungrateful child of which we've all been there speaks to a, an aspect of the human condition of a lack of perspective, of not seeing things rightly, of not seeing what's right in front of our eyes, the truth of what is right before our eyes. And I believe that's at the core of this issue of the grumbling heart. The discouragement that sometimes we give credence to, that we surrender our soul to, at the core of it is not seeing Jesus rightly. It's a twisted perspective all of a sudden, that we're letting what we see with the natural eye take the day rather than what Jesus has accomplished for us through the cross that has opened up the floodgates. So my prayer this morning is that we would see Jesus, and we will end with that song, Lord, open our eyes, that we would see you. Specifically, that we would see him rightly. So before we look at John chapter six, there's this passage that's just been so uh, ministering to my own heart that I want to point us to in Hebrews chapter two. It'll be on the screen. You can turn there if you want and keep your finger in John chapter six or it will be on the screen. So thank the Lord for technology. Um, Hebrews chapter two, starting in verse eight, it says this is what Jesus accomplished through the cross, through his death, through the incarnation, through taking on flesh, living a perfect life, taking our place on the cross, now putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. That was what was accomplished through the cross and through the resurrection. Nothing that wasn't a reality before because God never ceased to be sovereign and authoritative overall, but that was preached and clearly um, demonstrated to all of creation that he had sufficiency over sin, over darkness, over the enemy, and even over death, the last enemy to be conquered. Everything was in subjection to him. There was nothing outside of his control. But the next sentence speaks to our kind of current reality of what we see with our natural eyes. It says, at present, we do not yet see everything everything in subjection to him. That's the reality of it. We look around and we're like, well, this person I, I do, love dearly has cancer or I lost a loved one prematurely to death or I'm constantly straining and striving to, to make my way through this world. Life is tough. At this present moment, it doesn't look like everything is in subjection to him. So verse nine is the, is the, is the answer. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The cross preaches to us now, even 2,000 years later, that when things look hopeless, when things look the darkest, when it actually looks like the enemy has won, Jesus is victorious. He turns it all on head. He is victorious and the cross continues to be the the beacon calling us to recalibrate ourselves with truth. The, The sufficiency of Jesus on the cross 
Nothing was outside of his control. When everything looked like it was out of control, nothing was outside of his control. And he rose, he bursted then out of the grave to demonstrate, hey guys, everything's under control. It's not hopeless. It's not dark. The enemy has not won. I am victorious. And so now the call for us today, now in the year 2022, is for us to continually recalibrate ourselves with what we see in the sufficiency of Jesus, what he's revealed to us. That is the ultimate revelation of God. At this present moment, in this age of the church, in this age of the spirit, the ultimate revelation of God is found in the person of Jesus and what he accomplished for us on the cross and as he bursted out of the grave, what he revealed to us about his victorious, sufficient um, nature. So I want to speak to that a little bit more here in, in John chapter 6. Let's just pray as we, as we peer more closely into the Lord's word. Lord, we pray that you'd, you're just so here and we sense that. We thank you. I pray that we would never take that for granted. Your beautiful, tender spirit that walks in our midst and moves on hearts and opens our eyes and opens our ears. I pray as we peer into your word that Lord, your word would help us discern between soul and spirit. It would cut into our heart like that two-edged sword that it is. And as we sometimes face really difficult trials, tribulations, like the rub of life, feels like it's getting the best of us, I pray that, Lord, you would equip us as, as the people of God to see you rightly through your word. And that would be the defining reality or defining truth over our lives. Do it again, Lord. Immerse every person in this place in the revelation of your word in your name, amen. So we ended in, um, we stopped in verse 40. Last week, let's look at verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I have come down from heaven? They grumbled. Things didn't look as though they were in subjection to him. You're talking about this peasant from, from Nazareth? I know his father. I know his father, Joseph. And you're saying this one is the one who's come down from heaven? He is the son of God? Everything is in subjection to him. There's nothing outside of his control. It doesn't, doesn't look like. And what that spurs in the human heart is this grumbling. I won't even ask for a show of hands if you've been a grumbler at times. I myself have, have grumbled about the conditions I find myself in, the situations that I face. Things don't seem right. Things don't seem like they're in subjection to this bread of life, this one who's come down from heaven amongst us and opened up the doors for us to live in fellowship with him. And so at times we can find ourselves grumbling. We wish we had better answers than what seems to be the foolishness of the cross or the work of Christ in our, in our midst. I mean, as the Lord ministered to us, the foolishness of submitting ourselves in community doesn't oftentimes seem like the best answers for the, the trials, the tribulations that we face. But even that, 
the paradoxical nature of facing trials and tribulations in this world and then coming and submitting ourselves in community. Not submitting yourself to some authoritative figure like me. I'm saying to each other. People, people get all funny about the word submission in this day, in the individual West, individualistic West. But love can't be separated from submission, and we see it in the Trinity. That'd be a whole message in itself. And so the Lord calls us into community to submit ourselves one to another. And it's in that context of submitting ourselves one to another, the revelation of the love of God is seen manifest in us and, and the discouragement that we felt so, you know, so much like it was washing over us washes away in the love of God as we submit ourselves one to another and selflessly look to serve the needs of others in community. So how can it be their hearts grumbled? How is this the Messiah? How can this be the way? You know, more than anything, this was you know, speaking to just the, the commonness of Jesus, the familiarity of Jesus. And that can happen to the best of us, that we can begin to treat what is sacred as common. We stop recognizing the rare beauty and the wonder of Jesus. I mean, just look to the cross for a moment. May it never become common to us the sacred nature of the cross, of Jesus coming and taking his place. You know, the Roman cross wasn't all that unique. It was a common form of torture and punishment for criminals. But it's the fact that God himself took our, took our place on the cross, that he wasn't deserving of it, that he was falsely accused and that it should have been us there hanging on that cross, but it was him that took our place. May that never be treated as common as we ground ourselves in that. And we see that he showed himself victorious, even over that, the sacrificial death, taking on sin head first. I've seen this kind of grumbling come out in the church as people encounter Jesus and and people can definitely kind of spew out certain uh, judgmentalism or this grumbling heart over the testimony of others. I actually, I remember uh, when Tony got saved, there was this disbelief that kind of reverberated around his circles. Like, it can't be. I, I know where he came from. I know who he's been. It just can't be. I remember I saw that time and time again and working with college students and seeing them just get lit on fire for Jesus Oftentimes, family, they're close circles. Like, no, this can't be. This can't be the work of Jesus. They maybe had a form of, of godliness that denied power, an understanding of Christianity in a very, um, you know, prepackaged religious form, but not the power of God to change a life. That, it can't be. This looked, this looked too passionate, too zealous, too, too all in for them to grapple with. And let's keep reading verse 43. Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. The Lord Jesus in words of red, in letters of red is speaking to us about his grace. This is something we all have to come to grips with. 
That can feel offensive. What do you mean? Only the ones that the Father draws? Like the Lord is exclusive? No, the Lord is not exclusive. He says, come to me. Those who are weary, heavy laden, come to me. I'll teach you. Only those that have ears to hear will hear that call. But everything comes from him. The only reason we can respond is because he first gave an invitation. That's the gospel. That while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So yes, it is only those that the Lord draws. Because there's nothing for us to come to unless he first draws us, unless he first sends an invitation. And the person of himself and the person of the Son of God Scripture says that we were dead in our trespasses, but God, who was rich in mercy. We, ha- we all have to come to grips with that reality that we've only come to him because the Father drew us. The cross is always a reminder to me of the colliding of God's sovereignty and human responsibility and human free will. Because scripture plays out both hand in hand in the, in, the testimony of, in the testimony of the cross or the story of the cross, both are laid out for us like in God's mind, they're, they're, they're not in competition at all. In our minds, they're in competition, but in the Lord's heart, they are not. Because it says before time, this was God's foreknown, predestined way of redeeming humanity. So the cross was always his plan. To, son, to send his son was always the Lord's plan. But at the same time, as the, as, the New, as the New Testament church was birthed and the gospel was preached, what did they say? They said Jesus was crucified at the hands of the Jews. They still placed the blame at the hands of humanity because we are all gonna be held responsible for our response to the Lord's sovereign revealing of himself. The Lord's foreknown predestined way of revealing himself to us, we will all be held responsible. That's why Jesus, as the son of God, fully God, could, could hold certain communities even more highly responsible for the revelation of Jesus that they had received. Tyre and Sidon and Bethsaida, even Nazareth, he held them to a, a higher level of judgment because of the revelation that they received in their midst. And they said, you know, they didn't, they didn't receive him. They saw more miracles. They saw... They saw uh, more supernatural, and they still rejected him. And he said they will, be, they will be judged even more harshly than Sodom and Gomorrah. Because we will be held responsible, even in light of the Lord's sovereignty. So in the Lord's mind, they're not in competition at all. So I pray that we would see him rightly, that we would see that he is the one drawing us. Even right now, the Lord is drawing us. As it was spoken earlier in Isaiah 43, He's calling us by name. All that we'd have ears to hear that he's calling us by name. I pray that we would never stop recognizing the Lord drawing us. The Father is drawing you. He's calling your name. You'd have ears to hear, and that's what he goes on to say. Verse verse 45, it's written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. So I pray that we have ears to hear the teaching of the Lord. Everyone who's heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Those who have ears to hear, they'll come. Verse 46, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. 
So Jesus said it elsewhere, and I've spoken about that a number of times, that phrase that Jesus repeats, that he who has ears to hear, let him hear. The Lord is talking about a heart posture of hearing what he's truly saying and having the humility to learn from him. That's why I continue to boldly, unapologetically look to our kids to lead the way into revival in our region. I believe the kids can teach us a lot. Not that we don't need to lead them, we don't need to um, protect them in ways and disciple them in, in, very, in, the, in the mature things of the Lord, but, but there is a, if you just hang out with kids, you'll learn a lot about the heart of the Lord. You'll learn a lot about faith and simple trust, taking the Lord at his word. And so those that hear him, those that are taught by him, they're like humble kids. They see with eyes like a child. And so as we navigate the, the rub of life, the difficulties of life, the, those are the moments the Lord is giving us invitation to be like a child, to take him at his word. When things don't make sense, then we look to the cross. Okay, Lord, I trust you. I look to your sufficiency. When everything looks hopeless, when everything looks dark, like looks like the enemy has won. The enemy's actually taunting you, Lord. That's what we feel sometimes in our life. Like we get so uh, passionate about like the Lord's reputation sometimes, right? Like, hey, Lord, this isn't, looking, this isn't making you look great right now. We, we feel that way in our own life. Lord, if you could just do this miracle in this moment in this way, Lord, you would really look awesome. We tell him, the one who took on the foolishness, being associated as a criminal or associated with sinners and taking his place on the cross. Oh, that we would have eyes like a child to remember that there is nothing that has not been subjected to him. There's nothing outside of his control. He is Lord over all. Verse 49. It says, your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone hears this, or sorry, eats this bread, he will not hear this bread, eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for, that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Lord is pointing these Jewish hearers to the familiar story for all of them of, of Moses that we talked about last week, of the Lord sustaining them through this heavenly bread, manna, in the wilderness. But even that manna was, was something that would perish and they themselves would perish eating that bread, bread alone. Really that picture, that imagery, that human history points the, the hearers, the Israel, and it points us to this day when the ultimate bread of life himself would reveal himself to all humanity. That heavenly bread in the wilderness was a signpost to Christ. So God sent a sign from heaven to sustain them, but that sustaining was only temporarily. It would not sustain them eternally. That would only be accomplished in Christ. And so he, he talks to them in language that they understand. He goes, remember the story about the man in the wilderness. Hey, I'm the fullness of that man. I'm the fullness of that bread in the wilderness. Eat of me and you will never perish. They ate the man in the wilderness and they perished. Eat of me and you will never perish. You'll never die. You'll live eternally. 
I'm the bread of life. I pray that we would have eyes to see him and receive him like that. Receive him like fresh bread that sustains us. And that will be our sustenance for all of eternity. It's not just to see us through in this life, but this becomes the, the, the sustaining life for us from here on out. Now, currently, the um, Jesus School students are reading through an amazing book called The Heavenly Man. It's a story about a, a modern Chinese believer in the underground church in China. And it, it's, the whole story is just filled of just what feels like you're reading the book of Acts, but it's in, in the 20th century. During the Cultural Revolution, Brother Yun, his name is, was brought into this world. So in the midst of tremendous turmoil in China, where all religion was being eradicated, where Bibles were being burned, where Christianity and all religious forms were being outlawed. That's the time he was uh, on, in Chinese history that he was born into. So no knowledge of Christ, but his mom had a, a recollection of this one named Jesus. And so his family found themselves in a dire situation. Him, his four siblings, his, his mom, his dad, when his, when his dad got diagnosed with lung cancer. And you know, the, the communism of, of Mao's regime had nothing to give him that was an answer for his dad's lung cancer. Nothing, nobody else in the village had any answers for, for their hopeless situation. But their mom, but his mom had this, what seemed like a far-fetched idea to cry out to this one she remembers hearing about when she was younger, this one named Jesus. And so they cried out to Jesus, Lord, would you heal my husband? That's how she prayed. Miraculously, from his deathbed, the Lord raised him up. He was healed of lung cancer. And their family was just blown away by the, the power of this one named Jesus. But still, in their midst, they didn't have a Bible. You know, all the more, we need to be grateful. We say, we're just like those kids that my parents heard. Not steak again, as we all have our Bibles and we got hundreds at our fingertips. But this was only 50 years ago in communist China. This family of seven didn't have a Bible. Not only did they not have a Bible, they had no way of accessing a Bible. They had different handwritten portions that they had heard maybe some people had somewhere, some scant remnants of, of the word somewhere. So he, he traveled to this distant town that like his, his like teenage heart, all he wanted was to have a Bible of his own. All that I would just have a Bible of my own. I wanna read about this one named Jesus who transformed my life and my family. So he heard about this pastor who'd been in prison for 20 years for, for the faith. He'd heard that he potentially had a Bible. So he traveled to a distant village. He went there. And this pastor, you know, um, understandably was pretty hesitant to share anything about the fact that he had a Bible because you don't ever know who's, who's maybe undercover or setting him up. He said, if you really want a Bible, begin to pray that the Lord will give you a Bible. If that's what you want, begin to pray. So Brother Young began to pray the Lord would provide for him a Bible day after day after day. For 30 days he did that. There was no Bible that came his way. So he went back to the pastor and he said, I just desperately want a Bible. 
can I just read, can I just look at yours? Okay, I don't even need a Bible, can I just look at yours? He said, if you really want a Bible, go and pray and fast, go, go fast as well. Just begin to stir up a hunger more and more for your complete dependence on the Lord. That's what he did, this young teenage kid. He prayed, he fasted, he ate a, he'd a, he'd a bowl of rice that night. Then one night, as he slept, the Lord gave him a vision, a picture of this bearded man. Well, in this picture, in this picture, he himself was going up this hill, pushing this cart with all the energy that he had. And coming down the hill was this bearded man with two other individuals next to him. And he greets him with this warm, compassionate smile. And he hands him this red, bl- uh, this red blanket. And he opens it up and inside is fresh, warm bread. And he, he woke up and he knew right then the Lord was going to, was gonna give him, was gonna give him what his heart desired. Like, sorry, as he opened up the blanket, the, the, the bread turned into a Bible. So he knew the Lord was gonna supply him with a Bible. He woke up, he went and woke his parents up and they said, okay, you've probably lost your mind, you know. Yeah, now you're having visions, okay. They didn't have a grid for that. But next thing they knew, they heard a, a knock at the door and there at the door, was this bearded man and two servants with him and they handed him a Bible. And actually before he even opened the door, he said, do you have my Bible? And they said, we've brought for you a feast. And he, he devoured that, that book. He devoured the word. That became the, the manuscript for his sermons. He'd get up and stand before the, the underground church in China and, and his sermons consisted of, read, of not reading but quoting the memorized uh, book of Matthew and the book of Acts. Just beginning to end. That was, those, those were his sermons. Just the, the meat of God's word for people to hear. I recommend Anybody had to pick up that book, The Heavenly Man, it's a phenomenal testimony of how the Lord's working on the earth, even today. But I think it points to the sufficiency of Jesus. The Lord has, is calling us to see him rightly and to see what he's revealed to us in scripture, not as just distant historical stories, not just symbols of past work that he's done, but as sustaining life now. Now, here in this present day, the Lord wants to sustain us. He's relevant to anything that we're facing. Let's continue to read verse 52. It says, the Jews then disputed among themselves. How can this man give us this flesh to eat? So Jesus said, go give us his flesh to eat. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and and I will raise him up on the last day. For my my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living father sent me and I live because of the father, so so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven not like the, the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So this is still really close to where he grew up in Galilee. 
Verse 60 says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, as many of you were also saying. This is, this is difficult. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do not take offense at him. So Jesus goes to answering the the, the grumblings of the, of the human heart, the grumblings of those that call themselves followers of him. These are disciples. And as he was talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, they stumbled over it, just as we do. How can it be that we eat his flesh, that we drink his blood, How can it be? That seems so, so gruesome. What is, he, what is he talking about? I want to avoid that. Lord, just take me out of my situation. Take me out of my circumstances. Jesus is calling us to die to ourselves and to our own intellectual figuring everything out. And instead, eat of the foolishness of him taking on flesh, him coming as, as the incarnate God-man, living in our midst and then giving of himself on the cross and spilling his blood on our behalf. There is no other way. The cross in itself is offensive. And Jesus said that he would be a stumbling block for some. Not because he, he likes to watch people stumble, but because there is no other way. There is only one way and it's through him. So presenting the truth of the matter allows, allows us to stumble our way and either find truth or deny it. But there is no other way that he really gave his body on the tree. That's not just a historical romantic story of love for us in a generic way. It is the gruesome realities of God associating himself with our sin, looking like a sinner and the foolishness of that and then giving himself for us on the cross. We have to believe that by putting our trust in his sacrifice alone. You see, people will accept Jesus as teacher, and this was the same in this, as Jesus is addressing this. This is the same in Jesus' day as it is today. People will accept Jesus as teacher. They'll accept him as moral guide. They'll even accept him as a certain revolutionary, social revolutionary. They'll accept Jesus as healer. But there are two aspects of Jesus that come together, and they are Jesus as Savior and as Lord. The two cannot be separated. He is both Savior and Lord. If he is Savior, he is Lord. If he is Lord, he is Savior. He is Savior because he is Lord. He is Lord because he is Savior. He's able to save us because we stop trusting in ourselves. That he is ruler over all because everything is in subjection to him. I'm going to invite uh, Scott, just Scott, to come forward. This was offensive then, and I know it's still offensive now. The invitation to come and eat his flesh, to drink his blood. And the early church actually became, um, they, they grew in, in uh, reputation as a, 
as a fringe um, kind of weird group in the sense that they would use this very language as they enjoyed the Lord's Supper, as they shared the Lord's Supper in their gatherings. Who are these ones who eat of this man's flesh and drink of his blood? But what they were pointing themselves to continually was the death to their own intellect and their own self-saving and their full and complete trust in the sufficiency of Jesus alone. I want us to finish reading this chapter. It says in verse 62, as Jesus asked that question, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? If you're offended now, what if you were to see me in the fully glorified state, the Son of Man ascending to the heavens? Verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. It's the spirit that brings life and allows us to see him rightly. We need the spirit of God for us to see the Lord rightly. We can't think our way out of it. We can't feel our way out of it. We need the Spirit of God to come and give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so we can grow in the knowledge of God. I believe this is the, the truest sense of, of having the mind of Christ. It's the Spirit that gives life. So often as we walk through our trials and difficulties and tribulations that we grumble about, we try to think our way through it, we really lean into our, our flesh, our own personal history, the things we've seen happen in the past. What the Lord is inviting us into is something completely different. The Spirit of God is inviting us to take him at his word and to trust him. It's a passage in 2 Corinthians 10 that I just want to point us to quickly. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. So in this present moment, we see things that are not in subjection to the crucified, victorious, glorious Jesus that we read about in scripture. We see it all around us. Disease and tragedy and difficulties. But the war that we're waging is not in the flesh. And that's what Jesus was talking to earlier as well. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take it, and we take every thought captive to what? To obey Christ. We take those grumbling thoughts, that discouraged heart, we take it captive and we submit it to the cross. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Such a vivid picture of what you and I are invited into every single day. As we look around and sometimes our present reality doesn't line up with the reality of the crucified, victorious Christ. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back 
and they no longer walked with him. I think that's one of the most tragic verses in the Bible. Many turned back. These were disciples. These weren't just a generic, generic onlookers. These were people who said, I'm going to follow this one. This rabbi, Jesus, this revolutionary, this healer, this teacher, I'm going to follow him. But when it came to dying to themselves, like trusting in themselves, in their religious ways, they said, I can't have it. I'm not going to walk with him. And so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the only or the holy one of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? Yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. If you'd all stand in this place. The tragic reality is many did turn away. And having honestly pastored for the last 11 years and even just being in the church, not this church, but being in the church, capital C, for the last 37 years, I can tell you many have turned away. That they have not seen God rightly. And in not seeing God rightly for a sustained amount of time, eventually people turn away. I remember a number of years ago talking to an old friend that I grew up with. In her teenage years, I watched her with her love for the Lord, a tenderness to God, a sensitivity to his presence. Remember testimonies of God's goodness that she'd hear, that different ones of us would share, would just bring her to tears. She had such a a tenderness to the Lord. She'd sing about him. Her face would beam with the Lord. In college, though, she moved overseas. She saw the world. And over time, she began to see God differently. She didn't see God rightly. For for a number of reasons, a lot of things happened, like happened to all of us. And over time, her view of the Lord and the person of Jesus began to change. The disappointments of life, the fleeting pursuits of the world, they twisted her view of God. And I remember tragically then talking with her after the fact, after really she had walked away from the Lord. She said, Drew, I don't see it that way anymore. She did confess that some days I miss it, I miss him, but I wouldn't know how to even find my way back. The ones who stayed in John chapter six, the 12, and we know it was more than the 12. The ones who stayed, they saw him rightly. That was the confession of Peter. I see you as the holy one of God. You're not just a teacher. You're not just a moral guide. You're not just a healer, a miracle worker. You are the holy one of God. And for them, that was enough. And I pray that would be enough for every person in this place, regardless of what you're facing. Jesus was not just a prophet, a king, or a teacher, but he was the Holy One of God, the Lamb of God, the set-apart one. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.